Gracious Lord, we give you thanks for the beautiful day, for the sunshine, Lord, um, but also for the gray days, for each and every day reminders of the good gifts that you give to us um, undeservedly, Lord, and the gift of your word and the fellowship that we have here. We give you thanks. We pray that we would meet you here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I want to start with this. Apart from church, what are some of the places and practices in which people experience God? Okay, so apart, apart from church, worship service, coming to church, what are some of the places and practices in which people experience God and which you yourself as well? Yeah, Joanne. You always hear people say, oh, I'm out in nature. Sure, out in nature. Where, where in particular would you say? Just in the woods. Anywhere the outside, water. in the woods. Sunset. Bare legs. Sunset. Bare legs. <laughs> beach. Yep, remember WWJD, what would Jesus do? Go for a walk on the beach. That's one of the options. Yeah, yeah, Tara. Um, emergencies or crises when you almost die in a car accident. Wow, yes, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> says the nurse. Um, but she's right. And those emergencies, accidents, times when there's a close call, near-death experience, those often are those sorts of moments. Yeah. Other times, other opportunity places that people meet. Yeah. It's not bad. When I'm riding my motorcycle. Okay, when you're riding your motorcycle. Not because I'm praying to keep me alive. No, that's what Priscilla's praying. Yeah. Do you? Uh, I have to ask. Do you, Do you ride your bike with a helmet on or not? Yeah, I'm a helmet guy. You're a helmet guy. Okay. I, I wouldn't ride otherwise. Okay. I don't like the government telling me I have to have one. <laughs> All right. Well, that's right. And Jerry Seinfeld has this great bit about helmets, and he says. You know, why, why do we make helmets? Uh, it says, you know, we were doing these head-smashing activities, and rather than stopping our head-smashing activities, we came up with something so that we could continue them, right? <laughs> and it, which calls into question whether the thing we're protecting is worth protecting. But there you go. Yeah, Pat. When I'm digging in the garden, especially in the spring, and you have the smell of the warm earth, and I yeah. the idea of the seeds and the growth. Right. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Gardening. Well, I thought you might say, too, is another way for many of us is, is through artwork, right? And through beauty, that beauty is a way that, that people will often experience God, have a sense of his presence. Anything else? Other, other ways? Yeah, music. Music, too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, bumper stickers. Bumper stickers? <laughs> Which bumper stickers are you reading? My boss is a Jewish carpenter? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. Wow, that's a first. God bless you, Caleb. <laughs> but, I mean, just like sure. faith-based Yeah, bodies. sure. No, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Although uh, it does seem, I don't see Jesus fish around as, as much anymore. Where did all the Jesus fish bring it back. go off to? We'll bring it back. Yeah, go ahead, Sam. There was, um, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, there was a popular one, God is my co-pilot. Yeah. And then they came out with, if God is your co-pilot, switch places. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Jesus, take the wheel. Well, I start with this because the preacher in Hebrews 9 in particular is really going to try and bring us to a place where we recognize that that's the bottom line. The goal is knowing and encountering the living God. And we dance around it sometimes. We run from it. But what it really finally comes down to is us encountering and experiencing the presence of the living God. That's the preacher's heart for us, and that's where he wants to lead us in this passage that we're going to look at today. 
We're going to start with, uh, pick up at verse 8 in chapter 8 of Hebrews. And as we do, I find uh, a helpful bit of context for us would be to read from Exodus 19. So keep your finger in Hebrews and flip back to Exodus chapter 19. And the reason why this is helpful context is because uh, in the subsequent passage the preacher is going to cite from Jeremiah, there's references to the Old Covenant, the First Covenant. And this is where it all began, starting in Exodus 19. So let me read this for you from uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, Exodus. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and, you tell, you, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So far, so good. But there's one little word in those words that becomes serious sand in the gears for the people of Israel. And what was that one little word? Two letters? If. If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. That little word creates worlds of problems for the Israelites. And this is what the preacher is going to pick up on as he evokes his prophecy from Jeremiah back to Hebrews chapter 8. He writes there, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, and them there is the promises. The, for it says in verse 7, If the covenant, that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He finds fault with them, the promises there, when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the purpose of this passage that the preacher quotes from, this is from Jeremiah chapter 31, is he is trying to illuminate and emphasize the superiority of the new covenant, the new promises that you and I have in Christ Jesus and how it contrasts with the old covenant and those old promises. So he lays out three or four ways in which this new covenant, these new covenant promises are superior to the first. So let's walk through this here. Number two on your handout. The new covenant promises are superior to the first covenant because, first of all, the first covenant was contingent and the new one is unconditional. Okay? So that little word if is the contingency, the conditionality of it. If you obey my voice. 
And what was the Israelites' response at the time when, when God said that? Hey, if you obey my voice, then you'll be blessed. Their response was, cool, we'll sign up, we're game for it. Does not work out well for them, right? That first covenant was contingent and conditional, but the new one is unconditional. It is holy and purely by God's grace. There's no part of sense of us kind of keeping up our end of the bargain. It's not that we're meeting God halfway, but that it's fully from his grace. We talk about being saved by grace, sola gratia. It's that unconditionality of the, the new covenant. Secondly, that first covenant was external and the new one is internal. And we can push this too far because it's not to say that the new covenant doesn't have anything to do with our, our lives in the world, by no means, but it means that it goes deeper goes deeper, not mere externalities, but it goes down into the heart, right? That it's going to penetrate the very heart. And thirdly, that first covenant had a long memory, whereas the new one is quick to forget. Uh, one of the ways in which God talks about his judgment in the Old Testament is by saying that he remembers the sins of his people, remembers the sins of his people. As human beings, we live that out sometimes too, don't we? We like to keep records of wrongs, even though uh, we know that love keeps no record of wrongs. Uh, there's a, uh, an anecdote I like to share in wedding homilies, I've done it once or twice, from uh, a Dear Abby column I read a few years ago. I don't know why I was reading Dear Abby. I, was, uh, I don't usually read Dear Abby. But. Um, it was a, a woman was writing in about troubles in her marriage, and the problem she was writing about is that her husband would secretly, with his smartphone, record their arguments and then later bring up the recordings. And her question was, how do I destroy the recordings? <laughs> and it was like, I think we might have bigger problems than just you know, getting rid of the recordings. Why are we at such a place? Love keeps no record of wrongs. And this is why the New Covenant, that verse 12 in particular, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will what? Remember their sins no more. Uh, I say number three here. Since God has forgiven, we can forget. Now, uh, as human beings, this is easier said than done, right? To forgive and forget. I, I hear this often that I might be able to forgive. I'm not sure that I can forget. Time sometimes helps us with that, sometimes not. But even in our own lives, for our, our own sins, it can be a challenge sometimes to forget and to relinquish the sins that we have committed. And we keep bringing them up. God does not. God truly does forgive and forget. And I want to share with you a poem. I printed out copies last week. I forgot to make more this week. Um, if you'd like a copy, I can certainly make one for you. This is by... My uh, good friend here, Martin Franzman, we talked about last week quite a bit. And I, I might have included this in an inklings, come to think of it, um, in the past. But the, the poem is entitled, To Forget Past Sins. O oh God, you have trodden our iniquities underfoot and have cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You have forgotten as you have forgiven. The rising sun is not darkened by my dark yesterday. My hot rebellion of yesteryear has not dried this year's compassionate rain or parched the teeming earth on which I walk. 
Oh, still this guilty memory of mine, this dark and unadmitted doubt of you, this questioning of your forgiveness and your forgetting. Oh, do not let them rise again to torment me, those harsh defacements of my fellow man, those words that flew, arrows fiery with my anger, those proud and brittle clashes of me against my neighbor, those ragged neglects of simple duty. Your son's cross stands empty against the sky. Your son's grave is opened wide. Your angels have spoken. And your son sits at your right hand for me, for me. Let me remember this. Let me forget. Those sins that harrow us and that Satan is all too pleased for us to remember well. God has forgotten and relinquished. Let me remember this. Let me forget. Since God has forgiven, we can forget. It's the glory and the blessing of the promises that we have, the better promises that you and I have in the new covenant through our Lord Jesus, through his once-for-all sacrifice. And to bring the point home further, now the preacher is going to continue with some, uh, some architecture. All right, Any architecture fans here? Enjoy looking at old churches and, and stuff like that? I do. And we're going to get first a little guided tour of the old sanctuary, the tabernacle, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Okay, my whiteboard has temporarily disappeared. Perhaps when it returns, we'll draw a diagram of this. But um, you could even draw, if, if you're trying to, to picture this, draw a uh, rectangle. And within that rectangle, there's another rectangle, which is itself divided in, not quite in half, but in two. I guess a third and two-thirds, uh, give or take. And that's kind of, a, a gives you a rough schematic of the sanctuary and the tabernacle. So you have the outer area, and he doesn't get into that here. But first he talks about the first section is the holy place. Okay? So this is the, the first part. Your, this is the, the place where you got into the, the workaday world of the priests. Okay? So number four on your handout, the, the holy place, which is known as the mikdash. This was the first chamber of the tabernacle, and it comprised the everyday furnishings of Old Covenant worship. So it mentions the lampstand, the table, the bread of the presence. This is where the priests would go day in, day out, in order to offer the sacrifices, uh, to have that kind of everyday sort of uh, atonement, if you will. But then they go in further to the most holy place, the Mikdash, Mikdashim, the Holy of Holies, the second chamber of the tabernacle. And the overwhelming impression you get of that is gold. Everything's bedazzled with gold. You've got the golden altar of incense. You've got the, the golden Ark of the Covenant on top of the Ark, the golden lid of the Ark. More on that in just a second. But what I've always found so interesting is what was inside of the Ark of the Covenant. 
Maybe you've wondered about that before, or maybe you watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you're like, oh, I know what happens when we open that up. Your face gets burned right off. I thought about queuing that up this morning. I just want you to know. You should have. I should have. That, that's going to override lean on me, though. See, you're forgetting about lean on me, and you're just going to, anyway. Um, what was in there? Well, he says, the urn of manna. And what's the urn of the manna symbolize? Symbolizes God's provision of daily bread. That is, he provided for them through the wilderness, so he continues to provide. Secondly, you had Aaron's staff, which is important, especially for the, the role of the priesthood. Aaron's election and that authority as high priest. And then you had the actual tablets of the Ten Commandments. How cool is that, right? The Ten Commandments symbolizing God's covenant with Israel as his holy people. So you got all of that there in this most holy place, in the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, not as a separate thing, but as, as part of it, is the golden lid of the Ark, otherwise known as the mercy seat. And this was the very place of atonement. So you remember back to our study of Leviticus, when we talked about Yom Kippur, otherwise known as the what? Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement, right? And this is Leviticus 16. And notice how it says in Leviticus 16, I got it on the flip side of your page here, says, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, talking about the, most, the Holy of Holies here, before the mercy seat that's on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Okay. The mercy seat was the, if atonement could be boiled down to one place, that's where it was. This golden lid atop the Ark of the Covenant. Now, why this is so significant is because both the preacher here in Hebrews and also St. Paul are going to make this connection between the uh, Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat to the ministry of our Lord Jesus in particular. So the, the word, the Greek word that's used for mercy seat um, and, and the, in the Old Testament, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, is this word hilasterion, hilasterion. Uh, Paul invokes the hilasterion in Romans 3. Keep your finger in Hebrews, turn to Romans 3. And you can miss it depending on your translation. It's not obvious. Um, I haven't seen a translation that says mercy seat in this spot, uh, but it's there in the background. If you go to Romans 3, um, looking at verse... Well, you pick up with verse 23, say. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Say propitiation. Propitiation. Whew, there's your $5 theological term. To be received by faith. Propitiation is the translation here for the, the Greek hilasterion, which is the word that's uh, used in uh, Leviticus to describe the mercy seat. That's the word that's used for the mercy seat. So what Paul's saying here is that now, so to speak, the mercy seat became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, if you're looking for the place of God's atoning work, don't look to the Ark of the Covenant. Look to Calvary. Look to the Lord crucified on the cross. Now he is the mercy seat. He is the very place in which atonement at one mint is made, where God is putting us back together with himself. And so that mercy seat and the, um, all, of, all of these things that the, the preacher is 
uh, calling our attention to are um, incredibly important for understanding and pointing forward to the ministry of Jesus. Now, there's one other um, piece to this. I didn't mention it before, but he also points out above it, that is the ark, were also the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Okay, now please don't picture a couple of precious moments figurines on top of the Ark of the Covenant, okay? We're not talking about chubby little cherubim. We're talking about the angel armies and two of them in particular. And so the, the cherubim, and perhaps you've seen diagrams like this. Um, many Bibles will, will have it. But the, on top of that Ark of the Covenant, you have the two cherubim and they're um, situated on either end of the Ark. And they've got their wings and they're like this, okay? facing each other like this, um, so that I think their wingtips just touch or just barely don't touch, I can't, I can't recall, um, but overshadowing the ark. This is the literal basis when the Old Testament will often say, especially in the Psalms, um, uh, let me find refuge in the shadow of your wings. This is the idea, those wings of the cherubim. I've, I find refuge there, the mercy seat, under the shadow of your wings. There's one other really cool connection with Jesus and the cherubim's wings. And we might have mentioned this when we studied Leviticus, but it's worth revisiting again. So go to John 20. All right. If you go to John chapter 20, uh, this is the account of the, the day of, of resurrection. And uh, picking up with verse 11, John 20, verse 11. Mary comes, and Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. Where? One at the head and one at the feet. Now, as John is portraying this, you imagine the Lord Jesus having been laid out almost as in a coffin, almost perhaps like in an ark. And now you have the two angels there at the head and at the foot, not unlike the way that the cherubim were on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I can't say this conclusively, but it seems as though what John is kind of hinting, and this would be a very John kind of thing to do, is saying, again, here's, you, you're looking for the Ark of the Covenant. Here's where it is right here. Yeah, Bob. Well, it's in First John chapter 2. He's really clear. He is the propitiation. Yeah, he is the Hilasterion. Yep, for that's right. Yep, that's right. And that's a good, that's a good uh, point to bring that in because that would reinforce this notion that, yeah, John does have this in mind, that Jesus is the mercy seat. And so here you have the cherubim situated at either end. I don't have anything more to say about that except I think it's really cool. So uh, take, take that for, for what it's worth. Did they have wings? Did they have wings? Doesn't say. Doesn't say. But... <laughs> Everybody was scared, so probably so. <clears throat> All right, so the preacher brings us through this guided tour of the old sanctuary, and then he just abruptly, promptly stops it in verse 5. He says, of these things, we cannot speak now in detail. Like, oh, all right. Can I get my money back on this tour? Like, I just kind of stopped it there. But why does he do that? It's because his goal isn't to fixate on fixtures, but to contrast the old tabernacle with Jesus. Oh, there's my white boy. Thank you, my dear. Very good. I appreciate it. Um, so he wants to, the, his whole point in doing this is not to uh, just relish in the glories of all the, the good old days. Wouldn't it be nice 
If we had that old tabernacle again, it's really just the opposite. He's, he's trying to say, you thought that was cool? You ain't seen nothing yet, right? Now he's going to continue on to talk about how it points forward to Christ. So picking up then with verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Interesting. Okay, Whew. there's a lot in these few verses, and this gets me really fired up a little bit here. Um, because he's giving us this architectural parable. And he's, he wants to rap a little bit about how within the, the sanctuary itself, the tabernacle, it becomes a kind of parable of salvation history, of God's work in time. And he's saying, look, first of all, uh, he points out in verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places isn't yet open as long as the first section is still standing. We need our greater high priest to tread the way to the most holy place, right? So here is Jesus, the greater high priest, and he is the one who is the way and the truth and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. And uh, the preacher has already uh, used this term, and he'll use it again in chapter 12, that Jesus was the pioneer of our faith. He was the trailblazer. He's the one who's gone before us in order to, to open up the way. And what has he opened the way to? He has opened the way into the most holy place that was reserved for one man, one time, once a year. Now, what the preacher is trying to help us to recognize and to realize is that with the curtain torn, ripped open, that most holy place fills all things. It's no longer reserved to one priest once a year but to all the priesthood of the baptized, filling all creation with the presence of God. Isaiah has this image and this as vision of the new creation that the water, the glory of God will fill the earth. I mean, we sing it in Isaiah 6, we sing it in the Sanctus. Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, the whole earth is filled with your glory. Uh, the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins has this wonderful poem, God's Grandeur. It's the world is charged with the grandeur of God. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. If we'll have eyes to see it, or to stick with the metaphor that he's using here, if we won't just stay in the old vestibule of the holy place and refuse to enter in to the most holy place, which is where God wants us to go. I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. Let me just recap a couple of these things here. So he says the two chambers of the tabernacle correspond to the present age and the age to come. Uh, we often revisit this, thinking about how biblical time works. And 
we tend to think more spatially in terms of earth is here and, and heaven is up there, and that's a way to speak. But more commonly, um, the scripture speaks in a temporal sort of way, so that we have. Hey, Mark, that doesn't work. <laughs> so that we have the present age and the age to come, right? Remember me talking about this. The present age, or in Hebrew, you have the olam hazeh. Okay? The age, the this one. And then the age to come. Okay? The olam haba. Okay. Um, what complicates matters is that when Jesus comes, we have a kind of overlap of the ages. So that here, Jesus has come, and now we live still... How do we draw that? Venn diagram? What's that? Venn diagram? <laughs> if you're going to invite me to do a Venn diagram, maybe that would, that would be better, indeed. Um, more so than the, the arrow. So, you, with my favorite diagram, the Venn diagram, we see this overlap of the ages. So you have the, the present age and the age to come. And what happened, what uh, was expected by the people of God is that these would remain two separate circles. And that when the Messiah came, he would usher in the age to come, the Olam Haba in full. But instead, what we end up with is this overlap of the ages where we live here. Where we still are dwelling in the present evil age, as Paul calls it. And, but at the same time, we've gotten a taste of the age to come. Especially through the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, who um, Paul says is a foretaste or a guarantee of the age to come. Just to give you a couple of verses that speak this way. And once, you, once you're kind of attuned to it, you notice it all over the place. Uh, Titus 2 says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that comes, then the age to, to come comes in full. Or again, Ephesians 1 makes it even clearer. Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He, he rules now. He rules now, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So we live in that overlap of the ages, in that transition from the tabernacle, from the, the holy place to the most holy place. But already we are ushered in and able to go deeper. As it says at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia series, further up and further in. That's the, the summons of Aslan. That's the summons of our Savior. And so his bottom line here is he's saying, look, guys, the old tabernacle, the old covenant was a stopgap. It's temporary. He says, the, the, number 10 here, the actions of the old tab tabernacle could only ever serve as stopgaps until the time of correction. Reformation, our, my translation is reformation. The Greek word there is de-orthosis. You see that root, ortho, which means that uh, like we have an orthodoxy or orthodontry. Orthodontistry? Yeah, where's Lane? Um, straightening out your teeth, right? Um, this deorthosis. So here we have, uh, maybe in keeping with our um, theme in the sermon today, Christ the chiropractor who's adjusting us, right? And straightening us out in that way. 
Um, indeed, uh, the notion of justification could otherwise be translated as rectification, being set, put right before God. Right? Now we've been, boom, put right before him. He's upholding us. We're pretty wobbly and weak-kneed on our own. But you can lean on him. <laughs> when you... All right. Yeah, you knew it was coming. You knew it was coming. All right. So now, let, let's just rock and roll and think about this for a minute. Because where he's leading us to, what he wants us to recognize is that now, with that curtain open, now with that glory of God flooding all creation, now we have been ushered into the most holy place. Now you have a status greater than the holiest high priest of old. See, you're greater than Aaron. Remember what Jesus says about John the Baptist. Among those born of women, none are greater than John the Baptist. And yet, what does he say? The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That now you and I have a status that far surpasses all those Old Testament saints, not because we're better than them or something, but because we have been privileged to participate in these better promises. Peter says, things to which angels longed to look now has come to pass in Christ and is ours. And yet, to incite C.S. Lewis once more, he says, oh, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis says that we are like kids who are splashing around in a mud puddle because we don't have any idea of what could be meant by a holiday at the sea. Now, we're privileged here in the greater Arcadia area to have a, a little inkling, <clears throat> if I may, of what a holiday at the sea looks like, right? Uh, but even still, even still, we can be far too easily pleased. And how are we far too easily pleased? We're far too easily pleased when we're content with replacing actual encounter and communion with God with instead just mere busyness and religious duty. We hang out in that vestibule rather than entering into the most holy place where God would have us when all of our prayers, if we pray at all, is just a matter of, of duty. Of, okay, I've got to go through the motions. God wants me to say these prayers, to put in my time. As if that was what he really wanted, his heart of hearts. And don't misunderstand, the, the point isn't that, well, God's mad with me, or I'm under his judgment if I'm not praying enough or praying the right way. That's not it at all. It's that you have the a father whose heart burns and longs to meet with his children or to switch it slightly and perhaps in a way that's even more appropriate. You have a divine bridegroom who calls to you and me as his bride and wants to be with you, longs to be with you. You hear so much of the poetry of the Old Testament. You can hear that longing of God as he's already almost anticipating. He can't wait until the coming of his son, the divine bridegroom, to take on flesh. Because he says things like in, in Hosea, he talks about how, oh, I wish that I could take my, my bride out into the wilderness. He wants to sweep us off our feet. Says it, what, feet? Feet. That's where he wants us to live. In that joy and that vitality, that vibrancy of true communion and fellowship and relationship with him. We're far too easily pleased. Yeah, Bob. Uh, when you think about how carefully he um, 
dictated to Moses the construction of the temples. I've read that over and over again. I really look at that as a honeymoon. Yes, yep. And, and the Holy of Holies is the bedroom chamber. Yep. And then the way outside is where the nations gather. And what hits me so hard is in detail describing his honeymoon suite. Yes. While his children are building a golden temple. Yeah, it's true. And then he comes back and you hear the husband's heart just broken. Broken. And Moses says, what are we, you know, please. And then, he, and then it's like, okay, let's do it again. Let's right. start over. Yeah. But it's just this, the love he has yep. and, and this sense of intimacy is profound. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful, Bob. And that's spot on. That In building that first tabernacle even, already you had the bridegroom uh, building that honeymoon suite, as it were, for his people, for his bride. And that's often how it talks about, uh, it talks about that covenant as a marriage covenant. And that's why the number one way, I don't know this for certain conclusively, but I, I think it's true. The number one way in which the prophets speak of Israel in their sinfulness is as what? An adulterer. Again, this is the whole point of the, the book of Hosea. You know, poor Hosea. God says, all right, Hosea, <clears throat> I've got a call for you. All right, God, what is it? You want me to go out, preach your word? I want you to marry a prostitute. Okay, uh, sure. But it was to be a living parable. Both of the sinfulness, the adultery, the spiritual adultery of his people, but then ultimately of the unfailing grace and faithfulness of God. That so often as they you know, prostitute themselves and sin and go after idols, God says, I'm still married to you, right? There's nothing that you can do that's going to separate yourself from me. I'm not so easily going to allow that certificate of divorce. I'm going to keep on seeking you. There's a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Crazy, Crazy Stupid Love. Is that what it was called? And uh, Steve Carell's in it. You know, Mike from, or, uh, Michael Scott from The Office. He's so good. And he's this kind of husband that just he, his wife wants a divorce and he just he keeps going after, keeps going after, keeps going after. I, you know, I hesitate to, to bring up this sort of thing because I know for some of you, you felt that pain. You've known that, that pain of, of divorce in an earthly way. And I guess I just want to say, once again, it's not, it's not how God designed things to be. And to the extent that you feel that heartache and that brokenness and still experience it in your bones and its, its ramifications, know that the Father, the divine bridegroom, sees it and he comes to heal it. And we'll finally heal it at the last and full. So now this is where he wants us to live. He wants us to, the honeymoon suite has expanded to all creation. What was reserved for one person once a year has now been opened to all the earth, to all the holy priesthood. And so I say last of all on here, God wants us to leave the vestibule and come into the most holy place to meet him. Thomas Long, uh, he, he says this. It's a long quote, but it is worth citing here. He says, like all other human beings, what the members of the preacher's congregation really need and want is an encounter with the living God. They want to go into the holiest sanctuary to have access to God's mercy and forgiveness. But ironically, the very rituals of religion block the way. If they are confined to the outer tent of the old tabernacle, 
if the old system continues to control their religious imaginations and their experience of worship, if they live as if the first covenant were still in effect, they will fiddle with the oil lamps and pour out gallons of energy meeting religious obligations, but they'll never get where they need to go. They'll be at a deadening committee meeting on the outside while the living God's in the inner sanctuary. Listen, I don't know about y'all, but I, what I want more than anything else is to live in that close communion with the living God. I want to go deeper in that relationship with him. And it's my, my pledge and goal as pastor that if you want to go there to help lead you there too, right? For us as a, a family of faith to go deeper in faith and not to be content to dwell in the vestibule, but to go into that most holy place where we meet the Savior. I'll close with this. Um, Ann and I uh, watched for our movie night the other night, the movie Alive from 30 years ago. Do you remember this one? The story of the Uruguayan rugby team that crashed their plane on the mountains of the Andes. And everybody just remembers it as the movie where they eat people. <laughs> it's true, but it's tastefully done. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Um, I was amazed. I, I, I got to tell you guys, it's one of the ten most religious movies I've ever seen. It's incredible. If you haven't seen it or you haven't seen it in a while, I really do encourage you to revisit it. Um, and uh, no, I rented it through Amazon Prime. Yeah. Um, but there's one particular moment, this is not a spoiler by any means, um, there's one particular moment um, that really just stood out to me. Um, there's two, so there's 45 people on the plane, immediately like half of them die, but then of course there's a number who are just like really badly injured. Well, the rest of them are trying to keep it together. And there's these two men in particular, Fernando and Alberto. Um, who have, the, the one, he has this huge, awful gash in his leg, and it's getting gangrene, it's terrible, it's Fernando. And then there's Alberto, who's broken both of his legs. I mean, just horribly fractured. And they're both essentially just waiting until they die. And um, at one point, uh, Fernando's laying there, and he's just kind of in repose. And you overhear, it's off screen, Alberto crying. And... Fernando says to him, Alberto, why are you crying? And watching the movie, you're like, because he's got two broken legs and he's just laying there without any ibuprofen even. But that's not what he says. The camera pans over to Alberto. Why are you crying? He says, because I see God. And he is so beautiful. And in that moment, Fernando takes his little broken body and shuffles over next to Alberto and holds him. And I think, oh, that's where we meet God. In suffering, in brokenness, in those moments and places when you least expect him. There he is for you and me. Why are we crying? Because we see God. We want to see God. Amen? Amen. All right.
continue through Hebrews next week. Thank you.